mindfulness mode. As soon as I got that letter, I did that, and that changed everything. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show today. I'm here with a gentleman who, well, he faced a very, very serious challenge in his life. He lost his identity, he lost his confidence, he lost his purpose. He wasn't sure even whether he might lose his 22-year marriage, but he was able to move forward and uh, make things happen again for him. Uh, I'm here today with my guest, Steve Cloward. Steve, are you in mindfulness mode today? Absolutely. <laughs> That's good. That's awesome. So, Steve, what does mindfulness mean to you? You know, real quick before I answer that, that 22-year marriage in seven days will be 33. So I just had to wow point that out because that uh, wasn't easy, but we're getting there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's that's amazing. Yep. Well, congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. I gotta congratulate my wife probably because she's the one that endured a lot of difficulties. <laughs> but, anyways, you know, mindfulness. You know, it's interesting you bring bring that up because I, you know, in one of my businesses, three of my boys work for me, and and uh, we just got done with a meeting that we have on Fridays at you know from eight to nine, and yeah. and uh, it's you know, it's, if I'm being just brutally honest, it's been a little challenging for me at times because you know as a guy who's been an entrepreneur his whole life regardless of ups and downs and etc mm -hmm. you know sometimes i lose that perspective of being mindful of the fact that number one i don't know everything and <laughs> never will but you kind of it's like when i went to prison for example you you find out very quickly that the people that you love the most are the people that you end up hurting oftentimes the most. And the only thing I can contribute that to is we just get in routines and we take that, those people for granted often. And so, you know, as I've been really, you know, I continually try to work on myself and, you know, do that inner work. And, you know, when you show up in prison, all of a sudden you're in there, there's not a whole lot of time that passes before you're just stuck looking at that man in the mirror and yeah. you know in this business like I say it's, it's been a bit challenging at times because I'm I I'm putting my boys in that spot where I'm not really mindful of them and their abilities their talents and their skill sets and the value that brings I mean so you know mindfulness there's a whole you know bunch of different ways to look at it. that was just one that really I was focused on this morning because that's something I've really been trying to work on because it doesn't matter who you're working with, whether it's family or not, um, you're gonna create, I would I would just call them barriers to reaching the success you're trying to if you know you don't have the correct really just energy or the respect and and the you know value of other people. And you know, that was something my grandfather actually taught me very early on as an entrepreneur and you know no matter who it is working with you whether it's you know that from your person that takes care of cleaning your bathrooms all the way up to your manager everybody is valuable as heck but mm -hmm. hey, that's a long answer but um, yeah just being mindfulness there's just so many ways to look at that but really i've just been focused particularly on being mindful of others regardless of whether it's my boys are in business or not
Yeah. Well, I think it's awesome that you have your three boys helping you in your business. That's fantastic. My son helped me in my business for a couple of years. And that, like you say, it has its certain certain number of challenges when it's yeah. a father-son kind of deal, but it's also has a certain kind of rewards as Absolutely. well. So, yeah, that's really cool. So, well, let's just dig right in and let's talk about how did you end up in federal prison? Yeah, I'll jump right to that. And, you know, I think, I think I made it clear before, you know, and when I responded earlier, I'm an open book. So there's no question off the table, just so you know, um, yeah. you know, when people hear about like the name of my podcast, for example, they often think that because it talks about addiction and indictment that I went to prison probably because of my addiction, which right. had nothing to do with it. I was sober for many years before the whole federal prison thing came about. I had a, okay. You know, very successful real estate appraisal firm, uh, residential real estate. Got eight guys in my office, full time appraising, and an office down in southern Utah with three guys. And you know, it allowed me to really create that business where I just had a lot of time freedom. I was doing other things, and there was a, a guy who was doing a lot of big jumbo purchases, and basically, this was in the mid 2000, 2004 five through seven mm -hmm. and basically what was happening and i didn't know it at the time but you know a lot of people were doing this not that, that it was right because it wasn't but people were basically using straw buyers and what a straw buyer is is somebody that they say is just going to buy this home um which it would be in that person's name but they'd be using their credit and everything to go through the loan process and everything um and whoever was working that deal was like paying them for using their credit to buy it, but they never anticipated living in it. So in my case, what was happening was, you know, one of the realtors who was really known for the big jumbo sales uh, here in Utah and Utah County in particular, he would go to, you know, his network of people um, who would have, you know, a million, two to $3 million homes. And particularly in my case, you know, they were all, well, four of the five homes were in a gated community. And he, you know, say the home was a, you know, they might've been in at one, three, for example, but there was a comp that this realtor had kind of created um, a guy who was a huge donor to Brigham Young University. And I've heard he was the largest home builder in Arizona. He had built a home in this gated community called Stonegate. And mm -hmm. You know, when he's building a home for himself or, you know, his builder is, that's that's not a transaction through, you know, the real the internet or the MLS per se, but the realtor can put that on the MLS, which he did. And if I remember right, it was at $2.4 million. So of course, I didn't do any appraisals in my case. They were people in my office. Um, but with that sell on the MLS, you know, our job as appraisers is you know, we are to, um, you know, basically, I'm trying to think of the words you use. It's been a long time since I was appraising, but um, the MLS data is deemed to be reliable. Um, and then our responsibility, other than just communicating with the realtor, that's really where it ends. And which they did, of course, and the fact that it's on the MLS, that's what it's saying it is. And so that, of course, was a comp that they could use right in that same gated community so when they're praising that 1.3 home that maybe, but then this other one sold 
you know, six months ago at 2.3, then easily they can hang a lot of value on that one because it's so close. So I mean, there's so many similarities that you have to heavily weight that main comp. Of course, you've got supporting comparables. And sure. anyway, so what would happen was then the people he would ask if they wanted to sell their home because he said, oh, I can get you probably 1.8 million or 1.9, whatever the number is. Um, and then the house that was being purchased by the buyer, um, they would do a double close, which the title company then is facilitating the down payment on the house by basically doing you know, a, re a refi, cash out refi right on top of that first on the close. And so the down payment will be sucked out of that, that new mortgage. And they would say that the homeowner maybe got one point, you know, 7 million. If it was 1.2, then that quote, the guy that I knew actually that has to do the appraisals, he would then pull out a couple hundred thousand as his profit, mm -hmm. which is where, you know, that's a problem the way that the title company was doing it, but it was also a problem because the, the person that they were using their credit, the straw buyer, that was not going to be a primary residence. Okay. And even if they legally put secondary residence, what they did not, that would then change how much down would have to be on a loan for a secondary versus a primary. I see. So that was the, the what was happening. And, you know, the the appraisals, you know, were not fraudulent by the guys in my office. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the fact that they funded off the appraisals my guys did proves on a jumbo you have to have two appraisals. Mm -hmm. They did not. They fund on the lowest of the two, so they funded off of my guys' appraisals, which means. And I found out who did the other appraisals, a guy and a gal. Uh, so two different appraisers um, that were doing several of the second appraisals on the various deals, um, and they were being paid five thousand dollars for their appraisals. Which right okay. there, that's enticement to get them to push and get a high value. Right. We charge the standard 1200 on a big jumble like that. Wow. And there's a lot of other factors that went into it. The guy that was doing this, um, which was the main guy in my case, his folks died in a plane crash in 1979 that my folks were supposed to be on. Oh. And my folks backed out the night before uh, because my mom felt like she had to be at this church function. And so they took their two younger daughters and they flew out of the Pearl airport, not to get too deep into that story, but it was a very snowy day on January 9th, 1979. I was in fifth grade at the time. And my uh -huh. dad called the oldest son and said, Hey, have you heard from your dad? And at this point, you know, nobody had any questions, but my dad, for some reason, felt something and uh -huh. he hung up. And he, he just told him, Hey, when you hear from him, tell him to call Sherm. And as soon as my dad hung up, he got our whole family together and went out of prayer. And my dad was just sobbing like he knew something was up. Mm. Uh, they crashed and killed all of them. But nothing even came out like the beaker, beacon or beeper, whatever happens in plane crashes. It didn't go off for five days. Wow. It was really weird because it, you know, it did some pretty ugly damage and obviously the bodies and things. And so I think that was, I mean, I just look at the whole situation. It was kind of maybe time to just prepare the boys and three boys mm -hmm. stayed back. But anyway... So it was the youngest of those three boys who was doing these mortgage, these double closed deals. And, mm -hmm. you know, call it what you want, guilt by associate. I don't know. We, I mean, we weren't close friends or anything, but, um, you know, they threw me into the conspiracy charge and 
because you know my appraisal office did them and that's just what happened and <laughs> ended up wow. in federal prison for 14 and i got a 33 month sentence but the only positive that i've ever found with my addiction to opiates um because i was diagnosed with crohn's disease um that's how it all started but was that i was uh -huh. i qualified in federal prison there's really only two ways to get out earlier than the sentence um mm -hmm. it's either you know you're people call it a rat i don't really call it that i mean you testify on some other case that benefits you to get you out early or you get in this residential drug and alcohol program and because of my addiction i actually qualified for that which can get you out up to one year early okay so instead of doing the 33 months i might have gotten a couple of months halfway house so i would have done probably at least 31 because of that program i did 14 and a half months and then did um two months in the halfway house and did your appraisal company still continue to operate while you were there no i i surrendered my license um voluntarily but i knew they were going to take it anyway which yeah. they ended up doing um but now i and i had and originally my brother started with me as a partner i have two brothers two younger brothers and my second brother just below me was was my partner and he also had addiction issues and we had an agreement when i got sober you know he then wanted to consider getting sober which he did and when he did then we had an agreement if anyone relapsed that we could kick the other one out um mm. you know because obviously then one thing when you're both putting each other at risk but when one of you is putting the other at risk you gotta think a little bit more about it and he struggled a bit um and you know we ended up splitting it ended up being a positive it wasn't a nasty situation but and then my very youngest brother worked for me who continued to work for me um and you know i tried to sell him the business but uh that's a whole nother story i mean everything's cool now but he uh you know, wanted to go to mediation, which I did, which I thought was stupid because he was telling, he said, there's no value in it. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, I guess uh, you'll just walk right into this business and take it then, which is what happened. <laughs> mm. but yeah. I, when I went to prison, I had no income. Of course, I lost everything. Um, you know, whether I had assets they could take or not, they would have, you know. Sure. But I sold everything I could, paid off debts, and then just faced it. And it was, you know, it was ugly, but. You know, I, I tell people that it was a blessing, even though it was, I say that there's often things, there's things I did during my addiction that would have definitely put me in jail, possibly prison. Um, it was a conspiracy case, you know, there's nothing I did that I was guilty of, but it was still a blessing because, you know, I was really, I was a good dad. I'm a very loyal friend to a fault, probably, or at least maybe not friend, friend, but when it comes to business, I'm probably loyal to a fault. And, you know, I get stabbed in the back, you know, people take advantage, but I'd rather be that way than the other way, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, when you get to prison, you just realize so many things, you know, when you're stuck there. And, uh, you know, even though I believed I was a good dad, which I was, I mean, but I wasn't present, you know what I mean? I just, yeah. everything was about money and stuff and, you know, trying to think that the stuff defined me and yeah. trust other people, which is just foolish, you know? It's just ridiculous to think that way, even though it's easy to get caught in that trap. Um, yeah. But the thing I've realized too is most of the time that we worry about or think that other people think things about us, very rarely is that ever the case. <laughs> mm. It's all within our own heads. 100%, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, then you you had to regain your identity afterwards. And what was that like? How long did that take oh, you? That was so brutal. I'm uh, yeah. My like I said, my dad was a dentist, and when he retired, I remember him talking to me about that and saying, "Yeah, Steve, I I just feel like I don't know who I am now. I'm not Doctor Clower." And that didn't right. really, I didn't really get that. But after yeah. I came out of prison, boy, did I get slapped upside the head and really understand that. Because, you know, I had a successful business. I was involved mm-hmm. in community stuff. I mean, charity stuff. And then all of a sudden you have nothing. And you, yeah, as sad as it is to say, I think as a society, we do, it's pretty normal to have our jobs define us, you know, yeah, it is. careers. And that's just the way it is, which is kind of yeah. stuff, but that's just a fact. Um, and, you know, one, the trap I got stuck in was, you know, you come out and have that happen and then you have no, you know, I didn't have much confidence and that's, mm-hmm. that's a choice, you know? Um, and when you, at least my experience, this may not be true always, when you get to a certain level of success and then you lose everything and you're back at ground zero, I forgot that it took me years to get there. And yeah. so because of impatience and thinking it happened overnight, you know, I just didn't stay focused and I was chasing things and, you know, I frankly didn't know really what I wanted to do. And when you're in prison, you know, you, you tell yourself and you would do it, you know, you would, if you could leave that day and go work at McDonald's, you'd do it. You yeah. Know? But boy, does that perspective change quick once you get back into real life too, you know? And, uh, I, yeah. I honestly can boil it down to just two things and it's that confidence and then mindset. Mm-hmm. I was literally stuck for about eight years. And for about how long? Eight years. Eight years. Wow. I sat there kind of, obviously there's some victim mode happening. Yeah. And there's also, I think there was honestly there was a little laziness too and i'm a hard worker i enjoy work i mean unless i have something Mm -hmm. to do i just prefer to be working um but that's hard when you're not sure you're you're not committed or enjoying anything that you're doing too um Mm -hmm. and so it just made it tough and until i really owned it it's like you know i i kind of fell into the telco industry tv satellite home security and because I had a decent opportunity with that, but I never went all in because I didn't love it. Um, and I just kind of, you know, had ups and downs, just never really committed. And, you know, I started to hire coaches and, you know, buy courses and, you know, and really try to focus on myself. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you believe that you're going to hire that, excuse me, that manager, or that person that's really going to make your business take off, you're just fooling yourself. And so until I just owned the fact that nobody was coming to save me, it was hundred percent up to me, nothing was going to change. And that's when I just started to really work on my mind and try to really reprogram my mind is the only way to say it. So it's more the work you did yourself that made the difference rather than the work you did with the coaches and other they people like that. They see things that I wasn't seeing, you know, yeah, for sure. But uh, in fact, it was one coach actually that you know, I actually knew him from way back in the day because he was in the, we found out my office did appraise stuff for him because he was a mortgage broker, but um, I knew of him. I didn't know him from that, but um, he was working. I was with a group of guys we were working and, you know, one thing that he 
had me do was, you know, he had talked about, he calls it a concert self-creation statement. And that is, you know, your I am's, I have's, whatever. And mm -hmm. so I really dialed in and focused on that. And, you know, they say that if you can read it, write it, see it and hear it. So all four different things, obviously the bigger impact it would have. I got to the point where I, you know, obviously wrote it out and I recorded it. But once I memorized it, I would literally say it every day the second I stepped into the shower. And I would just say it like clockwork. And this is something I'm really into now because it it really proved to me, even though I'd, you know, learned about the secret and the law of attraction, there's mm -hmm. you gotta take it to a different level than just a vision board or thinking something. And so when I really started to focus on it you know, the power of words are way more incredible than we can comprehend, I believe, as well as yeah. thought, because we're all just energy. And, and so as I started to say those things, literally within two years, everything had manifested in my life. But one thing, you know, and it was like, wow, I didn't really do anything different. Well, that's really not fair, because the things I did do different, as simple as they may seem, to me, they seem like they're the hardest, because they're not hard. They don't take a lot of time. So we seem to blow them off. At least I do. And as I've worked with other people and, you know, it seems to be pretty normal. And that is the little things like that conscious self-creation, you know, whether it's reading 10 pages, whatever you decide a day or listening to podcasts, just focusing some time on you, you know, exercising, even if it's only 10 minutes or 15 minutes, that's something I always struggled with and I've never enjoyed um, and you know, when I realized that you don't have to kid yourself and think because somebody does one thing a certain way, say the, the whole morning routine, cause that's a big thing that people do, you know, I think we get stuck when we look at say the successful people and they say, this is what they do on their morning routine. And we believe that we have to do that kind of morning routine. That is yes. a myth. You have to do what is best for you. What works for you. But the key is those little tiny things, even if it's, you know, two or three different things that are only 10 or 15 minutes a morning, so maybe spend 30 to 45 minutes. Those are the things that really shifted because those little tiny wins each day were the things that started to grow my confidence back. And between those things, you know, and then, like I say, that conscious self-creation statement, other than saying it, and then really, the thing I really tried to do was vi visualize and feel like feel what my life would be like if I was that person or achieved those things. And those things aren't always financial or, you know, material things, but it's okay to have those too, you know? Um, but those were really the keys to what finally kicked me out of that victim mode and just being stuck. And what business did you start that was successful at that point? Um, I started my podcast and started doing some consulting. Um, I still actually, believe it or not, have that telco business. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I have a software business as my main focus now, as well as consulting. I see. And your your podcast is is uh, called Life After Addiction and Indictment. You mentioned that already. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I'm, I'm just really interested. Do you meditate? Do you get oh, yeah. focused that way? Tell us about that. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I... I'm an open book and that's something as much as I still do it, I struggle. That's something I really struggle with still, um, which if you listen to my words and that's what I catch, you know, I'm aware of, it's kind of like as an addict, 
until you admit, you know, you've got a problem, you're not going to be able to deal with it. And yeah. so I try to pay attention to those things because if I'm going to consistently tell myself I'm not good at it or I struggle at it, that's going to continue to hold me back. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think what I've recently just done and, and just owned is that it's not easy and it's okay. You know, if you have thoughts that come, you know, but the key is just doing the practice, you know, cause it does, it's like anything it takes time. You get better and better. And, and then consistency is really, to me, the key to anything. Yeah. So yeah that's, that's a huge thing. It is for sure. Huge. And do you still suffer from Crohn's disease? You know, I'll knock on wood. No. And it's crazy because I, was, I came off a Mormon mission in 1987 after three months and I went out at a whopping, I was 19 years old, went out at a whopping like 154. And within three and a half months, I was 123 pounds, kind of gray jaundicey looking. And I just woke up every morning with these gut aches and I didn't know what was wrong. And I saw a doctor out there. They didn't think anything. And to be honest with you, I, uh, you know, as growing up in a religion, especially the Mormon religion in Utah, it wasn't acceptable to come off a mission. And I went on a mission, didn't want to, but I went because I was expected to. Mm -hmm. And I'm not involved anymore with the church, but my dad in particular told me he's not cool if I come home, but he'll accept it if I wait until first week in April because the church has their you know biannual conference and maybe I'd hear something that would just change everything for me okay which I knew wasn't going to happen and he also did say at that point it's between you and the Lord I've never been one to feel like I have that real close connection with God you know um through prayer or whatever but for some reason I just felt I was supposed to go home and I'm a pretty prideful guy and mm -hmm. That was difficult to even consider, but I just knew something wasn't right. And so one morning, so anyway, he tells me, you know, get through that first week of April when they typically have the conference. And, and, but I was so damn depressed, you know, that I wanted to just sleep until that day came because I knew at this point I knew and I felt totally at peace with it. And one morning, I think it was like March 23rd, you have a companion and he was in showering for the morning and I just went in mm -hmm. the kitchen. I grabbed a whole handful of aspirin. I wasn't, I never thought I want to die. I didn't think I want to kill myself. I just wanted to be sick, man. I just wanted to sleep because I was so mm -hmm. depressed. And so I took a handful of aspirin and my companion and I, luckily we had a good relationship. And, you know, a little while later I told him, well, actually, no, we, we left, we went and visited some people. And we were riding our bikes home and I'm behind, he's in front and I was starting to lose it. My ears were ringing. And so when we got to the apartment, I went right into my room and just got on my bed and was holding on to the side of the bed because I wanted to just rage. I was ready to just lose it. Mm. And he came and asked me what's up. I told him. And so he took me, called a neighbor to take us to the hospital. And, you know, they tested me and said, you're lucky not to be in toxic shock and yada, yada. And, and so my dad flew out the next morning. And as soon as he saw me, yeah, he was in tears. Wow. Because just looking at me. Yeah, he didn't realize how sick you were. Didn't notice because, you know, they're seeing me every day. But yeah. for dad to see his son four months later, that doesn't look like him. Right. So get on a plane, we come home. And uh, two nights later, I'm in the ER. They thought it was appendicitis. They cut me open. And, uh -huh. you know, I did have a appendicitis problem, but um, found a 
ulcerated perforated black bowel cut 16 inches of my bowel out and that's when i was diagnosed wow. with crohn's and that's when i got introduced to the pain pills <laughs> wow and so what kind of pain pills were you on oh geez i don't even remember what they started me on but it probably was either hydrocodone or oxycodone or you know yeah i mean I, yeah yeah then i started chasing them all of course and mm -hmm. you know taking 30 or 40 oxycontin when I got finally decided it was time to get sober after 14 years of dancing with the devil. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's days I'd drive to work just crying because I didn't back then, you know, this was 2000. I didn't know how to get out of it. I didn't know what the options were. And right. Nearly as talked about or ex, I guess acceptable, maybe not the right word, but, but um, I just was sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. And I had a situation one day that I was, meeting a buddy down at the golf course, we're going to go hit some balls. And uh, the way I get there, you go down in the mouth of Provo Canyon. I was turning to head up what's called University Avenue. And that's about three miles down that road. Right as I made that turn on the university, it was the weirdest thing. And I had taken a bunch of different pills that day. And from like my, my neck down, I went numb. And then it's oh, like wow. I had this visual of me looking down on my car with my body in it. And it oh. freaked me out. So by the time I get to the driving range, you know, I'm a mess. I tell my buddy and my gastroenterologist, I knew where he lived and we were actually somewhat friends. His son had worked for me at my dad's car yeah. that I was operating. And so I drove to his house. He lived in a gated community. And so just talking to him through the speaker and here I am visualist. I'm, I'm scared straight. Like I'm done at this point. I'm, I can't, I think I'm about, I think I about died basically. Mm. And he had a party going on. So he talks to me through the speaker. And so he called an internist doctor of his friend of his. And, and, uh, I, at this point, I'd never even heard of Oxycontin and mm -hmm. that doctor said, well, I'm tied up. I won't be able to see him for like three days. So Tom, Tom Dickinson was my gastroenterologist. Why don't you write him a script for eight Oxycontin and then I'll see him and probably, probably he's probably self-medicating and I'll get him on some antidepressants and we'll deal with it. Well, that just shifted my brain, you know, mm -hmm. and then I started to have this belief that I needed them. And, and then it went on for three more years using Oxycontin and, you know, up to some days, 40 of those a day. So oh, wow, very grateful and lucky to be alive, honestly. Yeah, I guess. And what was your wife like through all this? How was she supportive? Man, it was tough. You know, we, like I said, 33 years coming up and we got married in 1990 and Right. And two years into it, you know, I'd started taking the pills and abusing them, you know, more and more as after we had been married. And in fact, mm -hmm. I remember having an ear infection when we got married and getting a prescription before we left on our honeymoon. And of course, I took them all. And and uh, it's about two years into our marriage. Now my brain chemistry has totally changed. And I literally one day she comes home from work and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I just told her i mean think about how brutal this must have been and how i mean i blindsided her and just said yeah i don't you know i don't love you anymore wow and then i left oh wow and there's so many things that transpired over the next 18 months second mm -hmm. son was born where you know i came home two different times and then left again and one night i had the flu i had gotten sober at least for this period of time 
to where the fog had lifted. And, you know, if you've ever heard about 28 days, the movie 28 days, like that is so real. It's crazy. Mm. And so here I am at home with the flu sick. And uh, in fact, it was our second home, but a home we built. And she was a nurse at the physician's office I had seen since I was a kid. And so, you know, all her coworkers, of course, the doctors knew me. So I wasn't about to call her mm -hmm. uh, or call the office because I was too embarrassed. At this point, she was living at her parents' house. And one night, Sunday night, I just thought I got to talk to her, see if she can, you know, because back then she could literally bring home anything, a shot, she could bring home a Z-Pack, whatever. Okay. Different back then. And so that's what I was kind of looking for. But at the same time, the fog had lifted. And I'm thinking, what in the hell am I doing? Like, I believe that I'm cool with being a weekend dad or however that looks. I mean, that's crazy, you know, and yeah, I do love her. And so I called her and this, this was like in 1992. So you got to think how many people had cell phones back then? We didn't, but she had one mounted in her car. Okay. Parents live literally about two miles from the grocery store. When I dialed that phone, she just happened to be between her parents and that grocery store on a Sunday night, which is something normally wouldn't have happened because her parents are very staunch Mormons. And but they were out of milk and bread. So she was going to the store simply for that. And I happened to call when she was in the car. And I said, I, you know, other I'm sick. I talked about that. And I said, but other than that, I don't know what to say, but I need to talk to you. Mm -hmm. It had gotten to the point where even with our backgrounds, you know, Mormon religion, I had been dating someone, even her, you know, she had been seeing someone a little bit and her parents were cool with it, even though we're not divorced, but that's how ugly it, it, it had gone on. I like, guess not ugly. It never got ugly, but it wasn't great either, but right gone on that long. And, and, you know, in fact, I still occasionally, if I run into my old attorney, I thank him because he'd have been on top of things, you know, things would have moved faster. Um, but she came over, we talked and, you know, thank the good Lord that, you know, she said my parents are going to kill me if I consider this, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, anyway, obviously, we got back together. And then for, as far as the addiction answer, of course, there's a lot of times that you put, you know, you put your loved ones in situations that are tough, like whether it's family functions. I can remember being, say, at Christmas afternoons at her parents and, you know, I'm going in a bedroom and sleeping or something. And, you know, so you put, you know, she's basically then lying to people saying I was sick or whatever. I mean, yeah, I might've been sick, but probably wasn't sick would be if I didn't have any pills, but obviously I did and just dumb things like that. Sure. And then, you know, the biggest problem is even though she stuck with it, I mean, like I say, I was a very functioning addict. So, you know, until something really poor decision I made or something I was doing that was dumb and maybe I got caught, you know, it didn't affect a ton. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's not even fair because that's really frankly life. I didn't think it affected a ton, but it affected right. who I was being. And whether that means short, whether that means, you know, not mindful of her, you know, a ton of those things that I wasn't seeing, um, but probably not miserable enough, even though she wasn't happy, you know, she wasn't willing to take me to the curb at that stage because of, you know, various reasons, obviously kids and whatever, and open, mm -hmm. but... Um, but until I was able to just become honest with myself and then honest with her, you know, it was, it was tough, but wow. I do believe everything happens for a reason. 
and you know we you know even even though i was sober for many years before i went to prison until i got out of prison and learned a few things you know we were still i mean marriage is tough relationships are tough it's work and until you it is you know until you commit and really put that other person first it can be tough and you know one thing that i learned uh really just only six years ago that i've I think is a huge, probably one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever received, whether it's for your marriage or relationship or even business relationships, is living in agreements instead of expectations. Because everything in expectation sets you up and the other person to have issues because I expected my wife to do X when she should have known, but she had no idea. You know what I mean? Just all these crazy things that we can tell ourselves. And it's just, it's so much easier when you just talk, lay things out, and you have agreements on how things operate. And then, you know, if something comes up, you just try to proactively address it. And it reduces a whole lot of stress and anger and misery (laughs) and makes life a lot easier. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about bullying because I've worked in this field for quite a long time. Do you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have somehow made a difference? Well, if it was me being bullied, yes. But uh, if, if it was me bullying, I don't, I can't think of a time, but I'm sure in my addiction, you could look at it that way probably. Yeah. Um, but I guess the way when I really think of mindfulness, you know, for some reason, I just automatically go to, you know, selfishness versus selfless. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the things that I've learned and, and tried to implement in my life is really shifting that because I still fight that. I, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I don't. That's something I, you know, I get angry when I talk to God sometimes. Like, man, I've been humbled to my knees in, you know, ways that I would have never dreamt. And like I said, I, there's times that I never felt like I could pray and really have that connection, but that comes down to also me not ever getting quiet enough and paying attention. But when I was called by my attorney on a Sunday morning, when I had already sat down with him and we were planning to go to trial and it's 10 days away. And he tells me on a Sunday morning, I'm meeting with the feds that night in Salt Lake city at six to come, come up with my plea. Mm-hmm. I freaked out. Like, I didn't know what to do because now he's telling me I'm going to go say something that I'm saying I did that I didn't do. Uh, and that was something I was challenged, struggling with. I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I went to my parents and that was the first time I've ever lived with the Lord in my life like that. Because I had to know, I had to know before I left that house, that was the best option for me. And, uh, man, I did. <laughs> and then the same thing happened. I don't want to get off too far on this tangent, but I have to say this too, because when I was in prison, I'm about three weeks in, I'm this, you know, victim, depressed. And the marriage was rough, obviously, before leaving, even though my yeah. wife knew things were messed up. But she's basically booted out of her dream home. Thirty, You know, it was already in foreclosure, but 30 days after I leave, she's got to move out. And that was just brutal. I call home. It's three weeks in, and and I said, do you even care about us? And she said, I don't have time to worry about us. And that just, like, 
being the selfish person, I was going to say something else. Yeah. I just felt like my heart got ripped out and went back to my cube. We call it cubicle. I wasn't in a cell or anything, but once again, I just prayed. I'd like, if I'm going to make it through this, I got to know that my family's going to make it, you know? And yeah, for some reason I knew, you know, <laughs> and so I was after that, I just had this peace and everything moved forward. But anyway, I don't apologize for getting off on that tangent, but it was just, yeah, I don't know why that came to mind. Wow. You've been through an incredibly challenging time. That's for sure. And then the fact that you're able to pull yourself together and move forward. I mean, it took you some time, but it took a lot of commitment and a lot of work to, to do that. I can tell. Yeah. Like I said, so, or, you know, everything happens for a reason, I believe. And, you know, like I said, I needed that time out in prison, even though I felt it was unjust and unfair. It was, mm -hmm. you know, it was the deal that had to happen. And yeah. uh, I, I, there's no doubt I wouldn't, you know, I think we have to look at our challenges because everybody has them different levels and mine aren't the worst by any stretch, you know, but it's what, yeah. what do we choose? How do we choose to respond? You know, I, during that eight years, I wasn't choosing to respond negatively, but I wasn't choosing to respond. I was just going through the day, right? I was yeah. Going wherever the wind blew me. And then I just finally, you know, we have to choose, make a choice because that's really what it comes down to. You know, we are in control of everything. And, you know, if you really look around, you know, if you want to evaluate yourself, that's the best place to start. But, you know, there's certain people I can look at. You know, my brother has an ex ex-wife who was just the most negative person always had this kind of frown on the face like the highlight of the day was going to get her diet coke and then you look at the person who you know several in this county that i know know personally who are just incredibly successful what is the difference you know it's a hundred percent what you choose and then what you think yeah. you know because yeah one one guy in particular i'm thinking of you know, he's multi-billionaire and created Vivint Smart Home. And, uh, you know, when you say he's the golden boy, well, okay, he's the golden boy, but why? You know, he meant some people, I mean, a lot of people say he's not even the smartest guy. Mm -hmm. They might, but he'd made choices who to surround himself with and who he chose to be around. And it, it really is that simple. Um, but when you're depressed and things are rough, it's not that simple. I... I've got a picture on my wall right over there of my best friend. I met him in high school and he was from the West side and a, a cowboy and, you know, Wranglers and white t-shirt. And I'm from the East side on the hill. And yeah, we played golf on the golf team together and became best friends. Well, he died of colorectal cancer back in 2006. And if he showed up right now in my office, as soon as we finished, if I was in some of the places I've been, they're very dark. And he said, Hey, there's a private jet waiting for us. We got unlimited funds. We're going to play golf all around the world as long as you want. I would say, nah, I don't really feel like it. Wow. That's how messed up you get, you know? Yeah. 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 But people, people, I believe the majority of people have good hearts and want to help people. And the toughest thing to do, at least for me, is asking for help. You know, but if we'll just ask, there's plenty of people that will help. If anybody's listening that is struggling with anything, you know, even if you're just 
in a dark place, it has nothing to do with addiction. That doesn't matter. You can always reach out to me. I'll always take the time to, you know, have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steve, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence for you? Oh, my grandfather. Mm. Awesome. My second question is about emotions. How has mindfulness helped you to deal with your emotions differently? Well, when you when you are aware of mindful of what is causing them, then you have a lot better chance of dealing with them. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, for my sure. emotions create my responses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about sometimes. breathing. <laughs> yeah, that? what was that? I said, they still do occasionally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try not to. Yeah. Let's talk about breathing. Do you have any tips or any thoughts about breathing and how breathing can help people? Oh, man, absolutely. You know, I don't have a personal way that I always do some of that. Uh, but I have a friend of mine, his name is Bill said, and he he has some breathing techniques. They're similar to what Tony Robbins teaches. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, there's times that I, when I think of that during days, like there's, you know, days in the afternoon, maybe I'm struggling and lethargic. If I'll stop and do some of those breathing things, it's amazing. Or even meditating both, either one. It's amazing how it can shift your energy. You don't, you know, I can't even explain it. Yeah. So like, I don't have that lethargic feeling anymore. It's just like, okay, let's go. Yeah. I uh, wanted to ask you a question about a book. And if you can recommend a book related to mindfulness, have you got any thoughts about that? Man. Not 100%. I know you wrote a you oh. wrote an ebook called Mindset is the Key. Is that still available? Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> it's terrible that I can't the URLs in my head, but well, I think it's Mindset is the Key dot net. That's, that's right. Yeah, Mind, yeah. Mindset is the master because I I just one day I said you know what Mindset is the key to unlock your life. If yeah, you want to really take control of your mind, and your thoughts, and the stories that you understand that you're grabbing and the thoughts that you have and you're grabbing and building stories on top of them, you can learn those things and start to reprogram your mind. You can change your life. Right. That's what I experienced, you know? Yeah. Mine's- yeah. And that book is a free book for anyone who wants it. Any of no your listeners, Mindful Tribe, yeah. isn't that right? Yeah. My, mine says the key dot net. There's no follow-up emails that are trying to sell you anything or get you to buy anything. So don't worry about that. Right. It's a free book. Yeah. 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 Are there any apps that, have helped you or that you use to stay focused? You know, I've used some uh, the Calm Meditation app in the past. Um, mm-hmm. That's really the only one I've used. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just incredible hearing your story and how you've been able to come out the other side. You're still married. You've got you've got four boys and a daughter, and you've got grandchildren. And wow, granddaughters! I'm a very blessed man. I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah, you are. That's that's really incredible that you've been through all this and you made it through. So yeah. do you have any final words of advice for our listeners, Steve? Yeah, you know, when you mentioned that, it made me think of, of when I was sitting in prison, two quick things. My father-in-law wrote me a letter and um, basically it was, you know, there's a scripture related to it. It was basically, you know, this too shall pass. But when you're sitting in it, like that's really not what you want to hear because you just can't, you can't see that, you know? Yeah. And then a lady who was a friend with my mother, 
she wrote me a letter. Well, she, she wrote me every month after the first letter, about three months in, and sent me several books. And she said, the first letter, Steve, I can't imagine what it's like. I'm not going to pretend to. But if you will think of three things every night that you have to be grateful for that day, as simple mm -hmm. as they may be, I promise you that will help you. She didn't know how I was doing. Of course, whatever my mom told her, you know, but I didn't, you know, they just assumed. But yeah, they were right. I was, this stage, I was pretty depressed and down. Yeah. As soon as I got that letter, I did that. And that changed everything. Because then you, you if you're, and gratitude is the key. Come on. Yeah. If you're focused on others and great, you know, things of gratitude, you cannot be sitting in that negative place and that victim mentality. And that changed everything. So even though you don't want to hear it, no matter how bad it might be with what you're dealing with, time does pass, you know, and I promise you, no matter how bad it is, somebody always has it worse and you can create the life that you choose. It's just a choice. Yeah. Thanks for that, Steve. And thanks for being on mindfulness mode. I really appreciate, really appreciate what you do to help the world and how you are really, you're really moving forward with, things that you're doing. And, and again, your podcast, Life After Addiction and Indictment. I recommend that as well. So thanks for being on the show, Steve. Oh, Bruce, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. You're appreciate welcome. It. Bye now. Hey, take care. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Thanks for listening to the show today. I want to thank my sponsor, Grammarly. Grammarly can help you so much with spelling, grammatical errors. You know, it can help me to write faster and more accurately. I, uh, would encourage you to get started with Grammarly for free. Grammarly works in desktop applications, sites across the web. It works on apps, social media, docs, messages, emails. You can use my affiliate link and get going right away. And by using this link, it will benefit me. And at the same time, you get to try Grammarly for free. So here's the link, mindfulnessmode.com slash Grammarly, G-R-A-M-M. A-R-L-Y. And with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.